On this episode of the podcast, we drag AT&T through the mud again. Jared whines about his amateur cycling career again. And a first for the show, I imitate a pickup truck for a chicken sandwich. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm Paul Tulin. And this is the best pandemic ever. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Best Pandemic Ever podcast. Uh, today, we've got a really high-profile individual who's going to be spending some time with us. And before we, we jumped on this call, both Paul, Paul brought it up, but I was thinking this before I even turned on the computer and, and jumped on here. I was thinking, what? this guy must really either have really low self-esteem or he's ready to tank his reputation because he's coming on this podcast. And sure enough, the first thing Paul says to me is, I, I don't know if this guy's just not feeling good. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, to come well, to be us. fair, what I said was, I said, I hope everything's okay with Dan genuinely concerned yeah, because the fact that he agreed to come here suggests that things might not be going well in his life. Right. And I really care about the guy cause he does a lot of really important things oh, yeah. for my community. So it was genuine concern because we're talking about a guy who is considered, um, Probably one of the pioneers of streaming video. People tend to forget that streaming video is relatively new and streaming music came first. This is all kind of things I learned from 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 meeting and being educated by by Dan um, and uh, was a pioneer of streaming video is considered probably one of the leading experts, certainly in the nation is frequently seen on you know, news shows that you've actually heard of instead of this one, uh, you know, <laughs> CNN and MSNBC. I mean, he's constantly, you know, he's testifying before Congress on on technology issues. Um, so it, it is it is both remarkable to both Jared and I and concerning to me personally that Dan has agreed to be here. But uh, but he has. And we're we're super grateful to this, have him. Yeah. So uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dan Rayburn. Yeah, What's yeah. going on, man? Yeah, thanks. Everything is well. So I appreciate the concern. Good. Good. This is a charity <laughs> interview for Dan. Everything He's... is good. You know, I, always, I believe in lots of mediums, right? So whether I'm writing books or I'm teaching at a university or lecturing, testifying, which I've been asked to do a lot. I have a blog that's been around forever. I've got a newsletter. I put on a really large show for my industry, right? Podcast. But I, I believe about, the, you know, getting on many different mediums as possible. So the good news is your audience obviously is very different than the typical audience I'm talking to, right? So how do you inform, educate, and empower others? You get the message out to as wide an audience as possible. So that's, for all the hats I wear, that's really my job, education. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so, so, so just because... Um, you know, the people that listen to the show probably aren't as well versed. I mean, certainly as I only know because I know you. So can you give them just a quick kind of background on, you know, your history in the streaming media world? Because, I mean, that's really the world where you kind of came up in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I was, you know, I like the fact that you didn't introduce me as a nerd, which was great. Because <laughs> oh no, we're gonna get think, to that. Yeah, that's that's the... what I think <laughs> you're gonna say, right? Uh, and I'm really, I'm, I'm really not a nerd. I, I'm not an engineer. I didn't go to college, but basically, I came right out of high school, went to the Air Force, right after the first Desert Storm just ended. So literally, it ended. I went in, uh, spent a couple years active duty, and then, believe it or not, depending on how old everyone is listening, there was a period of time in our country where we had no wars no terrorism, and the military literally had nothing to do. So they consolidated bases. The, the military was way too big after the first Gulf War. So I only spent a short period of time active duty, and then I went to Air National Guard, uh, and then they allowed me to leave early. So I think I only ended up doing a little over four and a half years out of the total six years of my service. And 
I got involved in computers with Apple, uh, just taught myself how to fix Apple computers. And then I started uh, doing Apple repair work certified from Apple. So if your computer broke and you were an organization, I came to your office to fix it. So I was a 19, 20 year old kid running around Manhattan fixing computers for Apple. And in 1995, one of the first large scale music events on the internet for streaming was called the Macintosh New York Music Festival. And it was dial up only, there was no video. It was 14.428, and it was pretty cool. I was like, man, this is a cool way to get music. And then Apple did it again in 96, and I thought, you know, this is kind of the future of the music industry. So I quit my job. I co-founded a company. I raised $75,000 from a guy I'd only met three times and who had a lot of money and started a business where we were webcasting bands most of the time. So it was mostly bands, it was Broadway shows, and in about 97, 98, video started to come around. You might remember the Victoria's Secret fashion runway show where the video was literally the size of a postage stamp. Right? That's how early this stuff was. And we did that for a little while. Uh, the company got sold for $70 million when I was 24, right? So who sells a company for $70 million at 24, right? I didn't know what the hell was going Damn, on. Damn, Rayburn sells what... a company for $70 million yeah. right. now, That's what, right. that's, you know, to go now, back to my intro here. <laughs> I don't I don't have $70 million. I didn't even make six figures on the deal, right? A lot of those deals were, were stock back then. But I just thought, okay, this is the future of the industry. So I went to a, a small little ISP in New York City. I was about employee 50, and they allowed me to start a new streaming division inside their company. Well, this was just about where the internet was about to skyrocket. It was 98. So they went out and raised almost $600 million on a bond offering from Goldman, did IPO. I'd say two years later, we were probably 1,000 employees. Mm-hmm. So my little division inside a company called Globix, you know, we were the ones who were broadcasting everything for, you know, like Microsoft on the launch of Bill Gates, you know, Windows 2000. And we were going to Paris doing fashion runway shows. Every artist you can think of, you know, Paul McCartney from the Cavern Club, right? The Beastie Boys Tibet Freedom Festival, where we had a crew in four different continents. We were just broadcasting stuff left and right for four years, seeing the world on somebody else's money. It was, it was about as good as you could ask. Uh, and then what happened? The dot-com crash, 9-11, right after that. And for the streaming industry in particular, uh, about 90% of my market, my industry, vendors in my industry uh, went bankrupt or out of business uh, within a six to eight month period. So uh, there was there was quite a lot of problems in my industry, infrastructure-wise as well. And most of these companies weren't making money, but I stayed in the industry and I started educating people and doing a lot of writing and blogging and writing books. And when the industry started to pick back up, uh, I was still there. I was the guy to go to. So, you know, I'm very fortunate to work as a consultant for companies. You know, many of the companies you all know that you stream content from every day to a lot of the vendors in the back end that are making it all possible, the, the Amazons of the world. Uh, but then I also do a lot with institutional money managers on Wall Street. A lot of these guys have Netflix and others in their portfolio, but they don't really know how it works. Uh, and then the blog goes out to a lot of folks as well. And then regulators started reading my stuff because I did a huge amount of work around that neutrality. So I sort of became the guy to go to for information because companies were leaking me all this information that even regulators didn't have. So then I started getting calls from regulators. Can you come testify? Can you testify in a Time Warner Cable you know, merger hearing? Can you testify in net neutrality? Uh, I declined all those requests because, of course, politics is politics. Um, now, looking back on it, you know, my last name is Rayburn. And my relative is Sam Rayburn, former Speaker of the House, who has an entire building named after him. 
So it would have been cool to testify as Dan Rayburn in the Sam Rayburn building. That would have been pretty neat. Uh, but in a lot of politics there, most times they're not really interested in facts. They're just interested in let's bring in an independent voice so that we can say we had somebody here who knows something. But they're not really listening. Right? Our, our laws are being made around technology from people who don't understand how the, you know, the intertubes and interwebs, as they call it, work, which is hysterical. Uh, but, you know, bottom line is just if you fast forward, I'm fortunate 2021 marks the 26th year of the streaming media industry. And I've been in it that long and been fortunate to have have seen it from the dial up days to where we are now getting 4K streaming. And it's it's incredible. So I spend about 50 percent of my time still on that. I produce a very large show with the National Association of Broadcasters uh, in Vegas and New York each year with conference. Right. And our, our keynotes in the past, I've done conferences for 16, 17 years, have been Bill Gates and whatnot. So very high level execs. Obviously, we didn't do the show last year. We hope it'll come back in October in Vegas this year in person, but we'll see. So I spend about 50% of my time on technology, and the other 50% of the time I spend working with uh, mostly SF, but but other teams in soft in terms of helping them make the transition. Um, many of them live with me and, and, and learn just what it really takes to get into the industry, helping them really find what their purpose is. Uh, I visit all SF guys who are wounded from all groups at, at Walter Reed. I've been fortunate to see every, almost every single one over the last three years. Uh, and then, you know, spending a lot of time talking to Paul and, and others just in terms of what are some of the other resources that that these guys need. Uh, so I travel to a lot of different groups. I'm on base with the guys for a long period of time. I'm fortunate that I get to train in some of the stuff that they do. But really providing the personalized skill set and service that they need that SFL TAP and all these other organizations that many have a very good intention, but just completely fail in terms of providing real world information that GBs need as they're making the transition. It's just it's sorely lacking and the Army is doing a disservice to them because, yes, the quiet professionals is something that is well respected for what GBs do. The downside to that is nobody knows what a GB is in the business world. They've never heard of it. Uh, and if you say special forces, many times they think like, oh, that's like a pilot or a SEAL or what? what is that? <laughs> and it's, oh, you guys kick in doors and run after HVTs. Like we don't do that here at the company. So I spend a huge amount of my time translating GB skill sets into the civilian world of what does it mean and how you can practically, how they can practically apply the skill sets, and you can drop them in your organization, and they will have an impact in day one. So I spend I spend a huge amount of time just educating companies on that. Nice, Dan. What's what was your connection? How'd you get into that? Uh, working with with special operations and working with these guys. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. It's it's you know we don't have enough time to go into all the details, but the bottom line was I sent an email to somebody and I just said, hey, listen, I have a lot of resources at my disposal. Many years I have fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars in gear at my house. The company sent me because they want me to review it for the blog. Hmm. So years past, somebody like you know Google would be like, hey, we're shipping fifty Chromebooks, give them away. Yeah, all right, cool. So I emailed someone. I was like, hey, I have all this gear, all this. I'd love to get it to soft guys. And can you connect me with someone? And they connected me with someone in person who was a major from 7th Group who had just retired. Uh, he came to where I was, kind of vetted me in person, um, which was an interesting process. And because uh, I thought I'd outwit them. And I was like, okay, I'll show up to the restaurant early, right? And they showed up earlier than earlier, right? And I'm like, damn it. Um, 
so that was interesting. And I met them and I just said, listen, I'd, I'd like to help. I've got the resources. They obviously did some research on me. They invited me down to Florida. I uh, went shooting, did some stuff with them, kind of just started talking, hanging out. And then he was like, the major said, hey, I've got somebody who's getting out, a captain. He really doesn't know what to do. Maybe you can help him. So I met him, brought him up here, uh, walked him into, at the time it was it was BAM Tech, but it's now Disney Streaming Services. And he lived with me. He got a job right away. And he's like, what do I do? I still live in Florida. My family's still there. All right, you're going to live with me. And you're going to need to work every day in the city. And then, you know, we'll figure out moving you up here. And that was really the start. And then from there, it grew to another guy and another guy and another guy. And uh, it was it was really when um, the major introduced me to a team downrange in Afghanistan. And I started shipping them a lot of electronics and whatnot. And the senior Bravo on the team just stayed in contact with, with me, became friends remotely. And then when I came back, he was like, hey, you know, I, my senior Echo has been shot. Do you want to come to Walter Reed and see him? So I got to meet part of the team there and then it just kicked off. They just, you know, I came to Colorado and then I met more and then more teams. And then, you know, one day you just get a guy calling you from Walter Reed. He's like, Hey, I've been shot through the jaw, jaw's wired shut. I heard you helped the last guy. Yeah. What do you need? Clothes, right? That's the number one thing guys at Walter Reed want clothes. 20 years later, we can't clothe guys. Little winter, they got nothing. So, you know, we're not going through the process of filling out paperwork. We're not, okay, here's a $500 gift card. Go buy the clothes. We're going to ship it to a 10th group guy who's there, who's now retired, but he'll walk it into the facility two days later. Problem solved, right? Yeah. So it just rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. And then, you know, through another person, I met Paul and I met Stu at the Army War College. And then, you know, that's led to meeting others. And it just, look, if you're willing to work hard and, and you can talk to people and you understand that there's a, a higher goal here of how to educate and how to communicate a lot of you know great work can be done but at the same time i have to you know i have to say it is it is absolutely a humbling experience to be as deeply involved with sf as i am because one all this has happened in pretty much the last three years which is incredible. And I've placed quite a few guys. I've talked to hundreds of guys in person, um, a lot of teams downrange. I never thought I'd be at Special Forces Balls. I never thought I'd be at the Pentagon, right, which was great to go to. But it's it's truly a humbling experience because if the American public really knew the skill sets that soft guys have and also just what they and their families truly sacrifice, they would get a lot more help than they do now as opposed to the companies that just want to put out something at the end of the year that says 5% of everyone we hired was military. And that's that's not doing a benefit to them. And NSF is obviously very unique. And and also having been embedded at the, you know, at the degree I am, right, being inside a shoot house, right, seeing how these guys shoot, right, just, you know, it fascinated me just the math they were doing and the angles, right, just how to get the bullets in. It just, there's so much that goes around what they do that nobody knows because nobody gets to see it yeah so i'll never you know think that i'll truly understand what you know everything that they go through and i never will obviously i'm not gp i haven't been downrange i've never been shot at but to see all of this in person it shows you just how unique the skill set is and now if we can just translate that to the civilian world and not in a mass market way because not every gb is same Right. Because we're all individuals. So you can't treat this as a, OK, you know, use a sock put in a program. Everybody goes through it and everybody gets the same type of job. It's not going to happen. 
you guys are individuals. You have to be treated as such. You need that specialized experience. But the frustrating thing for me is 99% of the GBs I get calls from or talk to or sit with, they don't even know that there's currently 11 states in the U.S. that provide no real estate tax if you have 100% disability. Hmm. Nobody knows. That's not an SFL tap anywhere, right? And they're like, nine times out of 10, they go, wait, what? That That's a... That's that's a pretty consistent problem just within uh, government resources in general, like for small businesses or for, uh, you know, different incentives that states are putting out. Because most of that stuff is being pumped out towards the big, like the Amazons and the Googles, you know, everybody. Right. Hey, that's when the public starts to understand, oh, there's all these tax incentives and whatnot. And they're trying to attract folks in to, to create jobs. But there are so many resources that are out there for folks in the military. I didn't even know about that with the um, 11 states but it's they just do a terrible job of communicating that especially to the right people yeah and there's no place to go to get the information i mean i'm always fascinated by you know on carson there's a school that microsoft and amazon do together to educate folks right 10th group didn't even know it was available and it's like it's on your base and you can't really fault them though because nobody is talking to them and it's just like it's on your base it's a school it's free you don't even know it's available so the, the information sharing is, is really bad. And then you just you also have so many organizations that want to do a good job, these nonprofits, but the vast majority of them don't have the expertise to really understand what makes a Green Beret unique, right? They don't know. So they treat everyone the same. Well, you're going to go through the same program that a regular Army guy goes through. You can't do that. It's not going to work, right? The, the SF guys have to find their purpose once they get off the teams, and it's very different than a regular person from the military. So it has to be treated on an individual basis. And unfortunately, so many people right now in orgs, they're about quantity over quality. And that just – that never works. I mean you guys know that better than anybody. A lot of the models too are predicated on – they're essentially thinly veiled placement agencies, right? So when we – you know, we stood up our the, the program we've been trying to get Dan to come on, uh, come down and speak to is a transition program we have down uh, at First Special Warfare Training Group. And, um, you know, one of the things we advise guys, one of the things we do is we vet and we validate existing resources because there are really great ones out there, like Dan was saying, who really appreciate the importance of helping guys understand their purpose and all these kind of important first steps that they need to take in order to successfully transition. One of the things we tell guys is, you know, there are somewhere, by some estimates, I don't know if this is a global or just a national estimate, there are about 40,000 VSOs, veteran support, veteran service organizations, right? And the overwhelming majority of them uh, are, you know, there's a lot of single, there's a lot of individual efforts. So just a person who's doing something. Um, But a, a lot of them are thinly veiled placement agencies that their model depends on them being able to put somebody in a job, not in them being able to help the individual figure out what's best for them, right? So yeah, they're, they're putting business over individual, right? And and that's yeah. I think the difference of, you know, people always ask me like, where's your website? I don't have a website, right? Well, where do you raise your money? I don't raise money, right? I fund this myself. I do what I want when I want. Why? Because I don't have to answer to anybody. 
right? That's the easiest way to do it. Now, sometimes that's a problem when you're walking through Walter Reed giving out thousands of dollars in equipment and some jag guys, like, you can't give that away. It's worth more than $20. That's that's the lawyers, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the lawyers. Yeah. I know, right? But then it's yeah. like, well, listen, I don't have to, I don't report to you. I don't have to listen to you, right? So he's going to get this and you can either be a problem and you can stand in the way and, and you're going to look difficult or you can, you can help assist here. So to your point, Paul, yes, there's a lot of orgs out there where it's just like the more we place, the more referral fees we get. Um, but that is not the way to do it. And that is not the way to help guys on an individual basis. So you have to be invested in this in something outside of business. Right. You, you have to be. So the guys I've placed at Disney or Comcast or Amazon, wherever it is, I don't take a referral fee from the company. Well, why would you do that now? Would I take a fee if it was like, okay, but this has to go to the Green Beret Foundation or something like that? Okay, that's different. Um, most of them don't do that though, right? They just want to pay a referral fee because that's that's the only thing that they know. So it just it has to be done differently. And uh, in, in a lot of the orgs out there too, I hate to say it, you know, they assign a mentor, and and then that mentor just wants to go around and say, I'm mentoring a Green Beret. Right? But they do nothing for them ever. And then the Green Beret is so upset because their expectation got set up front that this guy's going to mentor me and help me get a job. And then you're lucky if they call you back. I mean, to be honest, to be fair, too, um, a lot of these organizations can't do what you do because they just don't have the means to do it. I mean, you have tremendous freedom to do things exactly the way you want to do them because yes. you have the means to do it. I mean, that, that and that's kind of a unique position to be in and an and, and incredibly... Uh, you know, I mean, we're we're the beneficiaries of that. But I mean, that's you know, that's certainly some of these guys are out there. They've got to figure out how to put food on the table. And that's what I tell guys. I'm like, look, you have to appreciate these guys. This is their job and they got to figure out how to you know, they got to they got to make money. So you, you have to know that now it might be it might still might still be an OK fit for them. But generally, it's not. Yeah, agreed. That's definitely true. But at the same time, I know orgs that are raising hundreds of thousands of dollars from corporations. And then you look at where they put those those that money and those dollars. And it's like, man, that's a lot of wasted money. Yeah. You raised a lot of money, sometimes millions of dollars. Where's it actually going towards? Right? Who's actually benefiting from this? So, you know, that's what just infuriates me because, you know, when guys can't get closed 20 years later, Walter Reed in February, and they, they literally just ask for, you know, sweatshirts and socks. It's yeah, like, man, you know, you got to be able to solve that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but that's as much an indictment of our system as it is of anything else. When you're talking about, you know, the, the JAG, so for those of you who don't know, JAG is a judge advocate general. That's an Army's word for a lawyer. And, uh, you know, they made it cool on TV. But Very cool, yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so um, they don't fly airplanes, as you would, as, as CBS would have you believe. Um, but, you know, you, you know that, 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 that's an internal conflict, right? That's a dysfunction in our system where, you know, you have somebody who is going to um, be problematic when you're just trying to do we're just trying to do the right thing. Um, so, you know, Dan talking about distributing, you know, giving somebody giving somebody an electronic. Well, somebody's going to jump in and be like, yeah, that's cool. We don't control you. But I control that guy, and ethics rule says he can't take that because it's valued at more than three hundred dollars, whatever. The, it's probably way less than that. You know what I mean? So that's that's like an indictment of an internal system that's pretty dysfunctional too. Um, and I, you know, my my philosophy has always been: look, um, you know, the Jags are there to advise me of the legal risk, but at the end of the day, I get to the, make the decision on that risk. And if it was contrary to what the Jag was telling me, I always. 
the the ground that I would stand on in my own mind was if I have righteousness on my side, I can stand in front of any commander and say, hey, look, this is why I did it. This made sense. Yeah, I know it broke that rule, but here's you know here's the thing that I did. So, but anyway, that that that's as much about us as it is about external forces that yeah, you know, that don't serve us. Yeah, I mean, I always think of it as like you guys should kind of put me out of business by now, for lack of a better way of saying it. Like there should already be clothes being destroyed. Like no one should ever ask me for clothes. No one should ask me for CAC readers at Walter Reed because while they can rent the laptop, it doesn't come with CAC readers. Yeah. Okay, then how are they supposed to do their work? And they're just like, well, you know, I don't know, figure that out. <laughs> You know, connect it up that. So, right. so I, I generally, I ge we almost never do this, but I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to get too immersed in things that I, you know, that I'm super comfortable with. I want to ask you about something else that you kind of, in the history of what you were talking about and your, your trajectory. Cable bill. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. We, let's bring this back here. Like yeah, Paul's yeah, poor choice I, of company. Yeah, go ahead. You brought, you brought something up, and I was like, man, whatever happened to that? Is that resolved? Am I getting screwed? What's the deal? Because you talked about net neutrality, and that was a huge deal yeah. for a moment. And then all of a sudden it kind of wasn't. And like, I don't know if it ever got resolved in my favor. I get a sense that it wasn't. It got like repealed. Said, what's that? It got repealed. No so what does it. that mean? Like, what's the... Nothing. doesn't mean anything. Look, net neutrality, bottom line. You have to separate facts from opinions on this. Net neutrality was an idea that we want to prevent something from happening that isn't currently happening on mass market that isn't currently affecting consumers, that there's a potential if these companies did something bad, it might affect consumers. So let's put a law in place that is so high level and so generic, which by the way, also comes with no discipline rules. So if a company does break this rule, the law doesn't say what happens to them. We'll figure that out on a case by case basis. But politicians love posturing and they love rallying consumers around something that they feel cons all consumers care about. So what do most consumers care about? They care that their cable bill is very high, right? Net neutrality doesn't talk anything about price. It only is this idea that all the bits that flow on the internet, that if you are an internet service provider, Comcast, Verizon, Charter, whoever, you can't block or prioritize certain bits over another. That is simply the idea of net neutrality. Now, what does that have to do with your cable bill? Nothing. What does it have to do with um, service fees? Nothing. What does it have to do with regulatory sports fees that you pay in your bill? Nothing. It has zero to do with your bill. Now, people also brought into the conversation, well, you know, I only have one choice for cable TV or ISP in my region. This monopoly is not fair. Okay, you can go debate that, but that is the FTC that regulates monopolies, not the FCC, which was doing net neutrality. So the problem is people brought in all this other stuff around pay TV, cable bills, internet service providers, monopolies, mergers, acquisitions, everything you can think of, and it just got thrown under a net neutrality bucket. Yeah. And now, why have you heard nothing about it? Because these companies weren't doing what everyone thought they would do, and here's why. It would hurt their bottom line. If tomorrow one of these ISPs started restricting traffic the way many people thought they would, their stock would take such a hit that they would lose billions of dollars in market cap overnight. Why would they want to do that? Yeah. Well, the concern, I think, from a lot of people was going to the bill thing is, here's the scenario. Uh, you know, if if Verizon's making 
unique content. You know, so Verizon's got their own little studio again, just hypothetically here, uh, and that or Amazon, right? And that's in competition with Netflix. Then they're going to start restricting or throttling Netflix's video streaming, and then Netflix is going to have to pay a fee to Amazon to allow that traffic to come through at the same rate, and then Netflix is going to you know, kick that extra cost over to the consumer. It just kind of becomes this long, you know, this is all the possibilities of how this is going to work and it's going to completely disrupt. And I can understand, like, if you're really taking all those things into consideration, it's like, yeah, it because scary. it does. Well, and because, you know, I mean, it all goes back to incentives, right? Just like we're talking about with with uh, these different organizations helping uh, soldiers transition. If they're taking a referral fee, if that's their model, then they're going to do what they're incentivized to do. And so it's a it's a plausible scenario, but it's one that you're right has ne- never actually played out. Uh, and also, people consumers don't understand how the internet you know works, how it's built. So when it comes to net neutrality, what was the one big company on the video side pushing net neutrality? Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. Notice no other company in the video side was arguing about net neutrality. How come Apple wasn't? How come Microsoft wasn't? How come YouTube wasn't? How come it was only Netflix? Well, <laughs> because it's a business conversation. Netflix is paying to have access into Comcast, into AT&T right. directly in what we call an interconnect deal. They're also paying through third-party providers called transit providers to get access to their network. Netflix takes up so much of downstream traffic at night in some cases, it's up to 40% if you look at what Sandvine and others are giving out. And it costs them money to get that traffic into the ISP. So if they had gotten their way with net neutrality, what they wanted included in that bill, the the net neutral, where it was talking about net neutrality, was free access as much as they want into ISP's network. Well, why is that fair? So now as an ISP, I have to give you as much free access as you want. What consumers don't understand is when you're the ISP of Verizon or AT&T, you have zero control over how Netflix or someone else gets traffic to your network. They decide. I don't decide. I'm simply sitting there waiting for it to come to me. So no matter what anybody says around that neutrality, this was about business practices and the fact that Netflix refused – Every single invite by Congress and Senate to testify in public, what does that tell you? They They never testified a single time. (laughs) Why? And it's okay if you go to regulators and say, we think the business practice doesn't work. We think the terms have to change. I'm 100% fine with that if that's the tactic you want to make. But Netflix came to the market and said, we are doing this for consumers. No, you're not. You're doing this to help your bottom line. And then after all this happened, what took place? Netflix signed a deal with Comcast for an interconnect deal where they lowered their price and they increased their quality. Mm -hmm. So what does it come down to? Business, right? It's just like what we're hearing now where people are talking about communism and freedom of speech. It's not communism. It's called consumerism. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. This is this is a hot one. Uh, for sure, you were talking about this, Dan, before uh, before we hit record. Uh, Paul and I talk about this a lot, both on and off uh, the podcast. But it's just the the incentive structure of media. So early on in the show, and and when we started doing this, a lot of our conversation was around the fact that the vast majority of people don't recognize the business model 
of media organizations. Is it, and again, it always comes back to incentives. It doesn't matter if you're watching MSNBC or Fox or any of these other networks. They are incentivized to capture your attention because attention translates into ad dollars. And uh, if that is at the core, then they are not incentivized to inform you. They're incentivized to keep you outraged or keep you fearful because that just taps into that lizard brain of ours. It's like, oh, God, it's like a drug. And it's like we've always got to be on, on guard and who's winning and who's losing and which camp am I in? It's a... You know, it, there's no incentive to actually bring us facts. And this is something you were talking about as well. And I know you've been on the forefront of. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the media business is interesting. What you just described, we have a word for it in our industry and we call it engagement. Mm -hmm. Because the ad model has been around for since the early days of the Internet started where you just stuck an ad, you know, an image on a website. And it was it was just based on how many views did it get? You know, and yeah. then it, it evolved like, well, how many people clicked on it? And then down the line, you could buy based on not views, but on clicks. We call it CPM. CPM actually stands for if you're getting a $20 CPM, that means for every thousand people that see that ad or that pre-roll video, you're getting $20. So you know it's CPM, it's per thousand. And now we have this measurement called engagement, but everybody measures engagement differently. Yeah. Is it how long you stayed on versus how long you played the video? Did you start it, stop it? Did you jump into it? So the way a lot of these platforms make money, because Facebook's free, Twitter's free, is based on, to your point, how much time do we spend on it? Yeah. So everybody's competing for our eyeballs. We only have a limited amount of time in the day that we can read news, watch Netflix, Instagram, short form, long form, whatever you want. So the more commotion there is on these platforms, typically the more viewers you get. Sometimes the higher engagement you get, what does that lead to? It leads to more ad dollars. Mm -hmm. That is how the market really works. The difference now is that you have a couple of platforms that are now so large that so many people are viewing but also take up the largest amount of ad dollars that, that many are complaining that it's hard to get – the information in it to your point in more of a neutral way because you have a couple gatekeepers let's call them now i don't want to get into an argument that's right or wrong because most of what they're doing is legal right the mm -hmm. ftc allowed them to create these monopolies right so for as an example in 2012 when facebook went to buy instagram the ftc which is the governing body that looks at monopolies and mergers looked it over reviewed the terms and said after doing our due diligence you can acquire them we approve it Right now in 2020, they're being sued, Facebook, and part of that is based on um, acquiring Instagram. So, well, you told these guys they could do it eight years earlier. You maybe you didn't realize how big they were going to get, but now that they've gotten big, you're like, well, you guys are too big. So, I get that some people are upset. There's some companies that really dominate the internet, but what they have to realize is your politicians are the ones who created the original laws that allowed them to do this. So the blame can't really be on the companies because in most cases, the companies follow the law at the time. Now, that's not every case. But now, years later, the rules have changed, the laws have changed, so now the company is under more scrutiny. But you know, the problem we have now is an algorithm on all these sites decides what we see, how we see it, when we see it. The companies don't talk about what's in the algorithm. So it does create sort of a very simplistic binary view of what's taking place on the internet. Um, 
And it used to be, well, that's fine because if you didn't like whoever, the New York Times, read it at the Washington Post, right? Yeah. And you can still do that. This idea that we can only get news from one location is, is ridiculous. Right. But the difference now in the last four or five years, because so much has been pulled in with politics, it's this case of either you're with us or you're against us. Mm-hmm. And if you're against us, you deserve to either be canceled, shut off, or killed. Like, it's just... It's crazy. It's changed. It is so, really changed. So yeah. the only thing I would, so the only I, either question or counterpoint I would have is that while it is true that you, there isn't a single source for information, it seems like at least now that everybody is beholden to the same motivation provide, for providing information. So even if you look at a place like the Washington Post or the New York Times or somewhere ostensibly, let's say if we could pull a reasonably balanced information medium out of it out of thin air fox news man it, fair and balanced it, <laughs> yeah, yeah right so you you whatever it is right they're still they are they have now all been dragged into a, a survival game where that they have to compete for engagement and attention because if they don't they'll cease to exist so it begs the question you know we always ask essentially at this point i think there is no place that you can go where you can fully trust the information, which is why we are so adamant about the importance of critical thinking, about being able to think through what you see, about appreciating how these models works, about appreciating what their, you know, what their motivations might be. Because as our friend Jamie Mustard will say, you know, there's no liberal media, there's no conservative media, there's only corporate media. And so, I mean, I think it's challenging across all mediums for people to find information that they can rely on because I think they all essentially have to follow that that engagement model, don't you think? Yeah, I don't disagree. The thing I'd say is I don't think that's anything different in the last couple of years, right? We have a responsibility as citizens to follow the law, right? But we also have a responsibility, I believe, as human beings to question what we're being told, right? Many things we hear are an opinion. It's not a fact. Um, things we see are typically a perspective. It's not always the truth. So yeah. the fact that we have a large portion of of the population that sees something on the internet and doesn't question it, like, how has that changed and why has that changed? I think it's changed because, first and foremost, many people in this country feel like somebody owes them something. I don't know where this sense of entitlement comes from, right? They, they feel like somebody owes them something and they feel like somehow, um, you know, the government or somebody else, you know, has done something poorly to them. And it's incredible just how much emotions are now tied into everything we read or, or we do. And to your point, Paul, you have to stop and question everything. I think what's made it worse, though, is the fact that now, obviously, you know, phones. Everywhere we go, we've got information. We're reading something, doing something engagement at all times. It's easier to circulate the information from one person to another. Right. These platforms are now embedded also with much older people. Right. When when the Internet first came out, none of our parents had this stuff. No, right. No. It was the young generation. Right. No. Now, now everyone's got it just about. Um, so it, that is the problem is uh, that I think it's also a lack of confidence in people. Yeah, well, think of it. Yeah, you're totally right. And what's interesting about that and what you just said, too, Dan, is is you got a lot of older people that are on these platforms. So if you think about you know, our grandparents, the folks that are on these platforms, our parents, when they watched the news growing up, there was, you know, one or two sources. And for the most part, they trusted what it was that they were seeing on 
the TV. They trusted the, the source of information that was coming to them. That same idea, the same belief is carried over into this new, uh, this new ecosystem of social media. And they think, well, if it's in the news, it must be true. But they've blurred the lines yeah. off. If it's in my Facebook stream, then that's the news and it must be true. And it creates that disconnect where it's why would they lie to me? Which is, and then you have yes. the younger generation who's, you know, thinks completely different. But I think it also taps into the base human nature that, hey, if you can do the thinking for me and it's and it resonates enough with my my existing worldview, then that saves me some time and energy. Yes. And I also think it comes down to just people want to argue. Right. People oh, want to hear their voice. Right. And, and I say this all the time. Most people don't listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. Mm -hmm. right? Why? Why does everybody have the need to share their opinion? Like, why do you think I care what you think? Yeah. Right? It's, it's I think what I think. Right. You think, OK, fine. You think that even if I don't think that's right or accurate or whatnot, you're entitled to that opinion. At the same time, facts used to matter. So I will literally watch something like CNBC and they'll have somebody on the TV, you know, a CEO, and they'll be like, well, this CEO acquired this company six years ago. And right away I'll go, well, no, actually they didn't acquire that company. You got it wrong, right? It's never corrected. Yeah. So when yeah. things aren't corrected that are factual, even in the Wall Street side, it's funny in my industry, people will debate like what is happening, should happen, will happen. And I'll write blog posts and go, guys, this is a public company. They put their numbers out last week. Why are you debating the profitability? We know what it is. So <laughs> facts no longer seem to matter to anybody anymore. And you know, it, it also just seems the way people riled up that American tragedy is really now applauded for the sake of political opportunism. Oh yeah. Right? yeah. That's just that's just the nature of, of information. So, you know, I learned something early on. Um, in my industry, that was interesting when it, when I really sort of thought about where my industry is headed when it was only eight or nine years old. And you had a lot of people out there talking about it and whatnot. And, and I was very opinionated, but I stuck to facts as opposed to opinions. And I realized that it wasn't those that had the information that were going to win in my industry. It was those that controlled the flow of the information. Mm -hmm. And that's why then I did the first business book. That's why I did the blog. That's why I did the newsletter. That's why I put on the conferences. Cause then I started realizing I am now reaching my industry on every medium across every platform possible at a size and scale that I now control the information that goes out. Now that comes with a huge sense of responsibility, right? I mean, I used to take death threats um, from people because I used to call out a CEO of a public company for it being a scam. And sure enough, a couple years later, he was arrested and charged with, you know, cooking the books and SEC violations and whatnot, right? I wasn't expecting death threats during that, right? That was not a part of the business I was I was expecting, but people literally didn't want the facts to come out. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, because they were invested in the company and they were losing money. Yeah. But I realized very quickly, it's those that control the flow of the information that really win in the market. But that comes with a level of responsibility that we're only just now starting to see a Facebook, a Twitter, and others go, oh, do we have a responsibility right. about content we're putting up? Well, think about it when it comes to child pornography. Nobody argues on that. Those guys cut that off as quick as they can. Um, now you have people complaining that Twitter and Parler and others are being you know, terminated or shut down or because of death threats. Well, making a death threat against another person is illegal in this country. So much of what these platforms are doing is removing content that is illegal. 
yet either people are unhappy by, about that as well. So it's yeah. just gotten to a point of where common sense and intelligence is just not being used. I yeah. think the other thing, too, about it, you know, one of the problems that um, that we talk a lot about is the, you know, reality versus actual reality versus virtual reality, right? What what you're seeing is is a is a massive amplification and doesn't isn't really representative how you know what it's like in the real world, right? So I sure. used to tell use the example for Jared, um, which was the mailbox example, right? So if I showed you on your favorite streaming service or social media uh, videos of someone smashing a mailbox every day for a year, and every day it was a new person. You would be convinced, probably in a lot less than a year, that we had an epidemic of mailbox smashing and it was virtually everywhere, right? Right, right. But if you went out in your neighborhood, you'd be like, well, no, nobody's really smashed any mailbox because it was 300, at best, at best, it was 365 people out of, you know, 350 million that I showed you, but I amplified it in that way. And so, you know, all of these things that we talk about where it's like, you know, we're more divided, we're more this, it, it's all resides in that ecosystem. Where it can reside because there's there's no accountability, there's no physical, emotional, spiritual accountability amongst people there. So it can it can do whatever it wants. But when you get out in the real world, that never manifests. So I think there's some hope in that, um, because I think you know I think that's I I don't know I, I I I have this discussion with so many people when they're you know they're they're gnashing their teeth and they're you know and they're and they're um, rattling their sabers about how bad things are and I'm like yeah but it's not. Did you go to work today? Just stop and get a coffee. Did yeah. anybody try to run you off the road? You know, and I, mean, I and I think that's what benefits. I think all this actually, to your point, Paul, benefits SF even more, right? Because I mean, that is to me that is what draws me to to you guys is the fact that your job is to make sense of all the noise and pull out the pieces of information that are relevant. Your job is to figure out the state, knowing that you're going to have to shift how you get there, but you still know what the end state is, right? Your job is force, multiple, more force multiplication, right? Your job is you have empathy for others, right? So that whole situational awareness of what's really taking place and how, I can dump one of you guys inside an organization and they can immediately provide an impact to that organization in a positive way, even if they don't come from the particular industry that that organization is in. And that is such a unique skill set to begin with. But now in this country with what's taking place, the skill sets you guys have are enhanced even further. It's just a matter of how do we actually get inside the organization to the right person so that they understand that. And, and really the way a GB gets a job, it's not your resume. Okay, it's never your resume, especially because no. the resumes are written by some lady who knows group, right? And and I get it; it's six pages long. And I'm like, I'm like, right away, there's a problem. Right? And it's talking about how much equipment you guys, you know, were in charge of overseas or <laughs> hazardous stuff. And I'm like, guys, nobody cares about that, right? So, um, you know, the, the key here is translating that to the civilian world and making it very clear what the skill sets you are and how that can be practically applied. And it's just a matter of the GB that wants to get out or anyone in any soft team, really, you have to get somebody like me in the industry you want to get into who makes a referral for you, right? The way I've gotten SF guys jobs is I walk into the organization to the CTO or somebody I know who hires, not the HR manager, right? And says, you should hire this guy and here's why. Now, they're, they're also coming on a recommendation from me. 
many times are in my personal pipeline, which means they've lived with me, they've trained with me, right? I've brought them to shows, I've flown them out to places, I've brought them to meetings. But the point is, that's how an SF guy gets a job, right? He gets somebody who who really understands the benefit he can provide to that organization and explains it. It's never based off your resume. And that is part of the problem with some of the organizations out there is they don't truly have connections, right? They have connections with the hiring manager, right? Or they have connections with somebody in the org who it's not really a connection. And and that's the key. That's that's the biggest advice I always give SF guys is find somebody who's going to vouch for you inside the organization at a level where that person can make the decision. Yeah, that's our that's one of our number one uh, cautionary notes right from the outset at Janus is, you know, we share with them that 99 times out of 100, like of the 99 guys that we've talked to who have successfully transitioned into a job that they love, 0% of them got it because they floated a resume out there. It just right. doesn't work like that. It's based yep. on, you know, it's based on a meaningful network. But I, it, but the other thing you said too that I, that I find at least a little troubling is the fact that being situationally aware, being able to objectively understand your environment, being able to understand the end state, that shouldn't be a remarkable quality. You know what I mean? Like that should be fairly, it shouldn't, you know, I told, I, you know, I, uh, my sister gives me a lot of shit because I bring her up all the time because she's my, you know, she's my liberal leverage in the, uh, in the Northeast, but she, we were going back and forth. She was asking me all these questions about what was going on in DC. And I was like, Hey, listen, taking a shit on the floor of the, uh, of, of, the capital is comic gold, but it's not a threat to the state. You know what I mean? I'm like, that should be able to, that should be something you should be able to kind of deduce, you know, sort of see through that. She was asking me why the National Guard hadn't showed up in the time. And I was like, well, okay, maybe there's some technicalities that I understand that other people don't. But there's so many things that's like, that just don't pass the common sense test, you know, that you should be able to say, yeah, that doesn't make so much sense, which is one of the reasons, that's kind of the reason we started this podcast was because one of the benefits we saw is that people were suddenly starting to have some time to stop and think through things a little more critically. But now has, you know, the months and have dragged on and people are more and more dependent on video mediums and, you know, virtual mediums. It seems like, you know, the, the pendulum isn't swinging as hard as we want it to back to the common sense side of the, of the spectrum. So I, mean, and I don't think it will. You have, to, you have to think of personal standards, right? Why people are like showing up on, on webinars and Zooms, right, in the business world, you know, in their pajamas. And it's like, well, I'm at home. Why does that make it okay? You wouldn't yeah. show up to a board meeting like that, right? So in the business world, it's interesting, you know, just over the last 20 years, how, how it's changed. I'm amazed at how many meetings I go to now, pre-COVID in person, right? And you go to shake someone's hand and they're kind of confused. Like, are you handing me something? Right? And they're kind of not sure. Or you show up at a place and you're you're just, you know, they, they go, why are you wearing a suit? I'm a businessman. This is how I dress. We're coming here for a meeting, right? But it's, they're thrown off by it. They're all confused. One of the things that frustrates SF guys I place in any organization immediately, like within a week, they're like, man, I filled a whole note, notebook of everything wrong at this place. And I'm like, all right, slow down, right? <laughs> You're not making changes tomorrow, right? But the stuff that they don't understand is they're like, Dan, I, I just, I don't understand this. We have a meeting at noon. Half the people show up 20 minutes late. The other half don't show up with a pencil and paper to write anything down. Nobody's held accountable because someone was supposed to bring, you know, notes from the last meeting, but they're like, ah, I forgot. I'll send them out later. They're like, how do these businesses survive and stay in business? Well, one, many of them don't. Two, people are lazy. And three, 
companies allow people in many cases to get away with this because now the business world is so politically correct. We don't want to make anyone upset. We want to make sure everybody is being treated absolutely fairly. Well, you should not be treated fairly based on the job you're doing. You should be promoted or not promoted or whatnot based on how good a job are you doing, right? I mean, that's that's what you're being paid for. These are not nonprofits. These companies have to turn a business. They have to turn a profit. And that's why I tell the GBs this, and they don't believe me, but I, I tell them some companies will actually pay you a bonus to leave. And they're like, wait, what? I'm like, yes, the good companies will realize that they would rather pay you twenty or $25,000 to leave if you're not happy. Why? Well, because the amount of time that it's going to take them to find a new person, train them, bring them up to speed, pay a recruiter and all that is going to cost a lot of money. And then you have to think of benefits. You have to think about what work are they not doing? They're tying up HR because they're issues. Companies out there will pay you to leave. Super smart. Keeps their own employment insurance down, too. Probably so. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's true. Right. So you have to think about this as a business. But, Paul, to your point. You know, you can't have a rational conversation with someone who's irrational. Right? Yeah. You just can't. And that's what we've come to in this country is um, I just want to hear my opinion. Right. Somebody owes me something. Um, this sense of entitlement is just absolutely out of control. I even see this in the business world. And, you know, we never saw this in our parents' generation. You know, how, how remarkable is it, though, do you think that it's it's impossible to get somebody to change their mind? I mean, that's always been a thing I think we kind of romanticize. Like, I don't think that anybody 20, 30, 100 years ago ever thought that, you know, wasn't, wasn't, uh, I don't know, that, that, that they weren't um, dedicated to their beliefs. You know, it, I, don't, I don't think that me having a conversation with somebody and not being able to convince them that I'm right and they're wrong is remarkable. Is it? I mean, I don't think it is, but I think it's a I think it's a lack of just respect as another individual. Right. I mean, just just think of the lack of respect we have in this country. If you're traveling on a plane and, you know, people literally take their, you know, socks and shoes off. Right. You wouldn't have seen that 20 years ago. It would never happen. Right. And now you, you just have this lack of respect for just other people where I can do anything what I want. It's a free country. I don't care if it impacts anyone. Right. That's that's what I'm going to do. I've earned that right. And it's like, well, yeah, but at the same time, right, we're all individuals and we all have to get along and we're all in the same country, right? There's certain things where it's just from a human perspective, right? You got to have respect for yourself and respect for others. But you have plenty of people now who have no respect for themselves. Well, we can't expect them to have respect for others. You what's know, your interaction with – sorry, Jared. Yeah. I was going to say, what was your, what was your interaction with, um, with people? How, what's it been like over the last, over the last year? Your actual physical interaction with other humans. It's well on the at. business side. So you know, in New Just York. In general. Yeah, it's it's been very little. Um, I mean, you know, all stuff. All the groups have been canceled. So with you guys, a lot of stuff. Now I bring guys out here, which is great. But uh, it's it's been very little. You know, I live two miles from New Rochelle, New York, which was the epicenter where all this started. Um, so we had the National Guard here. You know, a month after that, scrubbing out in the street everything that was locked down. Like just cleaning, right? That's what they were doing. Um, I don't live in Manhattan. I live north in the suburbs, but you know I've been to Manhattan a few times this year, and it's a ghost zone. It's just it's it, it just feels like a hurricane came through and everybody left. So it is completely changed. But it's also interesting. You go into some towns where people just refuse to wear masks, and then other places they're super strict about it. 
Uh, in the business world, what I find fascinating is, you know, I, on my blog, if you go on my blog right now, my newsletter, whatever you want, my phone number's listed. It's my cell phone. I answer it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't screen calls. I'll talk to anyone free of charge. Right now, when you go and you call somebody who sent you an email, they are shocked that you picked up the phone and called them. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, oh, hi. I wasn't expecting you to call me. Well, you sent me a six-page email. Did you think I was going to reply? Pick up the I sure shit wouldn't. phone and call me. Somebody sends me a six-page email. I'm like, this person clearly has some mental problems. Definitely right. not going to get mean, on the phone. So people are now literally shocked that you pick up the phone to communicate them with them in a way that isn't a text or an email. And to me, that is just – that is not how the business world used to be, but translate that to the civilian world, right? Texting is a brilliant way to miscommunicate how you feel and misinterpret what other people mean, right? And, and multiply that times everything else that we're talking about. So up here in the Northeast, yeah, it's it's been interesting. Certain places are certainly more strict than others. Manhattan now goes in and out of lockdowns that I can't even keep track of, which fortunately I don't need to because I don't live there. Um, but you really wonder how does it work later this year or next year when people come out of this are they going to be more sensitive to sensitive to others in the sense of more respectful are they going to respect people's personal space now um it's going to be interesting it's it's behavior is going to change yeah. it already has and it's going to change even further yeah. I mean, there's certainly the the possibility that it'll change for the better right i mean you know it it's, it's possible yeah it's possible that one of the things we take away from this is an appreciation that we actually need each other i know that um there, there's got to be this just overwhelming groundswell of cabin fever that eventually will have to find purchase somewhere right eventually yes. some curtain will be lifted and people will i mean like it's it, it is a scientifically known fundamental requirement of human existence to have contact with other humans i mean you know you know, oxytocin and, and getting released and from the touch of another. I mean, that's all real. That's 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 you want to talk about, you know, um, facts versus opinion. Um, and so uh, people have to be desperate for that. They, they have to be. Well, that's already so manifesting. That it's already been manifesting. I mean, from the protests and riots this spring and summer to what we just saw in Washington, a, a huge driver of a lot of that is not because well, I've been sitting around and informing myself or I just have this, you know, I've, I've done my research and this is what I believe. It's it's a mix of, of course, being easily persuaded in one direction or another. And then I need to get out of my house. Like there's all this pent up energy and this lack of human connection and contact that more and more people are just, I they I, this is a perfect, it's a powder keg, really. So yes, you're and it's going to happen. And, yeah. and it's, you know, I put on conferences, right, in person for a living for, for some of what I do. And, and once... COVID hit and we had to cancel conferences last year, a lot of people nicely reached out and they're like, I'm sorry, sorry to hear your conferences are canceled. I did want to go, right? You guys are going to take a financial hit. And and then because so many events went online, people go, well, this is the future. Your in-person conferences are never going to, never going to come back. And so I wrote a lot, long blog post about that. And it, uh, it was entitled focus conferences will come back stronger than ever because of what makes us human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the majority of us want to be around others. We want to read body language during negotiations in the business world. We want to listen to the tone of someone's voice. We want to network and interact with other people. That is the human aspect of who we are right now. There's some people who don't want that, right? They're loners, whatnot. Fine. We're always going to have those, but to both of your points, 
things like, you know, people were going, oh, well, now that everything's streaming online, you know, movie theaters will never come back. Of course they will. People want to go on dates. They want to take their kids. They want the experience of the bigger screen and the audio and the popcorn and maybe not for everybody, but things that involve interaction with other humans is part of our nature. It's who we are. So the idea that everything's going to go virtual or digital, and now I'm hearing in my industry the nuts going, well, everything will go virtual reality. You'll stick glasses on. And you'll never have to walk outside again. Have you tried Why that? Why would you want to do that? That shit's pretty amazing. <laughs> I mean, Oculus I watched Paul get his, is pretty cool. Paul got his ass kicked playing Thrill of the Fight, and we watched the whole thing just by yeah, – yeah, that's another some, story. Yeah, some fat ass was wearing me out. He, like, put the, like – He, he yeah, put, like, the great. saddest possible opponent, and I just – yeah, that guy was wearing me out. Yeah. yeah. I, I could see that with technology with you, yes. If your cable bill's frustrating you, yeah, VR is probably going to – yeah. Here, I, I, no, no, no. I... no, I think this, it, you shut up, Paul. Give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that uh, I think is, is really important that, you know, when I, ta- when I talk to folks a lot, especially around the ideas of technology, I always want to emphasize the point that technology is just a tool. Yeah. You know, when's the last time you saw a hammer get up and build it, build a shed on its own? Now, I'm not saying that's completely out of the realm of possibility, the way technology is moving. But for where we are right now, it takes human intent to utilize that tool to actually create something. So in the same way, a lot of the talk and speculation about, oh, we're going to go all virtual. This is not a new conversation. You definitely know this because you're on the forefront of streaming video. I mean, when people were able to have video conferences, uh, what, 15 years ago when it first started out, or people were able to talk over, over, like we're doing now, it's much clearer. They're like, oh, well, this is the end of, you know, this is the end of work people aren't going to go into offices anymore. And that just wasn't the case. Why? Because there is that human drive, the human desires and drive, the things that make us human, the needs that we have unconsciously, you know, our biological drives are always going to trump technology. They just are. So this constant, the conversation about technology completely replacing us uh, in our human nature has been going on for decades and decades. And it's always wrong. Always. Yes, and and also look, technology serves its place in any business, of course, right, or, or any place. And and I describe technology as fire; it can keep you warm and cook your food, or it can burn down your house. Right? There's a lot in the internet that is bad. There's a lot about technology that is bad. But technology, to your point, is just a tool. People think because of, I mean, I wasn't raised with technology. I'm 46. We didn't have computers in school, but because they think I'm such a technology nerd, I would much rather have a moleskin and a pencil. And for me, I just, I like that better. So I use technology when I need to, and it benefits me. It obviously powers my business and it helps with other things. But the other thing is you have such this idea and most of this is pushed by media. And that's why you see these headlines. One service will kill another, right? When Disney plus came out, Disney streaming with their Disney plus service a year ago, headlines were Disney plus to kill Netflix, (laughs) Netflix to be destroyed because of Disney plus. What did we find out a year later? Disney got almost 75 million subscribers for Disney Plus in a year. And, oh, by the way, Netflix grew at the same time as well. One didn't kill off another. So I always say that, you know, the theory of a proposed replacement is always more appealing than the reality of the, you know, the solution in use. So there's this idea with technology that, well, you know, the next thing is VR. The next thing is, you know, 8K TVs. The next thing is 3D TVs. Remember Curve TVs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that worked really well. And yeah. then it was like TV guys were like, well, let's do 3D. Everyone wants that at home. You can't buy a 3D TV anymore. 
VR is not something from a mass market consumer application. It works well on assembly lines and, and there's, you know, there's military applications for it. So VR has some specific use cases. But this idea, to, to Jared's point, that you know technology is just going to replace a lot of the human interaction, yeah, we've had that conversation in this market forever. I think what it has done, though, in a negative way, in a destructive way, is the younger generation. Mm-hmm. The younger generation, it's interesting to to meet some of the kids and, and you, know, you talk to them and they're like, oh, well, you know, I have this friend and, you know, they're my best friend and whatnot. And, and then they're like, well, I've never met them. I'm like, you've never met them? No, you know, they're on Xbox, you know, and it's like, you know, I've played games with them for three years, right? Well, first of all, you don't really know who they are unless you FaceTime with them. For all you know, it's like a guy, a girl, kid, adult, right? So yeah. there's that problem. And then the second problem is the younger generation is just, they don't understand human interaction, right? They're, many of them tend to be awkward, right? Many of them, they don't know how to shake somebody's hand. Why? They've never been taught they have to do that. So I do think from a younger generation standpoint, it's hurt a lot of them to really get the social skills that they need. And obviously with the pandemic, that's hurt even worse when they're not around school, they're not around teachers, right? They're inside their family, their brothers and sisters, who they already see a lot of. I think the pandemic has has hurt a lot with that. Yeah. Do you have kids, Dan? No, I don't. Thank God. I've got I've got a six and a nine year old and then Paul's got teenagers. And so I I pay attention to that a lot as well. And uh yeah, it's really interesting around the use of technology with kids. Just the use of technology in general, whether it's gaming. For me, um, I you know, for my kids, I don't let them interact with other people online. Like I have all those settings shut off just because you know you don't like you said you don't know what kind of creeps are out there. I mean, Paul might be playing a game and trying to interact with my kids, and it's just unacceptable. <laughs> I got I got I got the pipes wide open for these two. Oh like, man, whatever. Who's <laughs> out there? But I tell you, I tell you something really interesting. Where I did see this, this how even human nature, our human uh, drive for connection, carries over into technology. There's this. Uh, uh, I do a lot of my. So before kids, I used to race bikes as an amateur, which I always like to describe it this way. My my brother-in-law was a professional cyclist, which means he gets paid to suffer. I was an amateur competitive cyclist, which means I paid money to suffer. So. That's the big difference right there. And, of course, the skill gap. But uh, after kids, my risk tolerance went down because, hey, you know, if I get hit out on the road or whatever it might be, that's going to have a greater impact uh, than it was before I had kids. So I spent a lot of time cycling indoors virtually on this program called Zwift. And you're literally riding with people who are riding on their smart trainers. It's not like Peloton. So for anybody's listening, that Peloton shit, that is for, you know, city folks who want to get a 30-minute workout. I'm talking about like actually racing with people across the world. And yes, clearly I have low self-esteem about this. Uh, Being able to connect with folks across the world who are also riding with you, you start to create a connection without ever talking to them. It's like when you're actually riding in a Peloton, you work together. You find people that you're able to work with. Sometimes you make different agreements. Say, hey, look, we're going to work together through this for X, Y, and Z purpose. And then when it gets to the end, we can split off. You start doing that virtually in this space. I found myself doing that in this space virtually as well. And it's that to me was a real eye-opener that I am looking after or trying to help somebody who just helped me because working together against this other team. It's, it's bizarre. It was... Uh, so I see technology having opportunities like that if you're truly collaborating towards an end goal. Um, but does that outweigh the the awkwardness and the... Yeah, uh, well, you have a similar bond. I get that, right? I mean, there's, yeah. there's you're both, to your point, you have a goal there. And, and I think 
I think teaching that to kids, I think, is fine as well. I mean, I do a lot here with the local Girl Scouts. So last year I went camping with 150 Girl Scouts. So uh, that was an experience, uh, right, for a whole weekend. I was like, okay, <laughs> if I hear that song one more time, uh, right? But the two things I was teaching them was first aid, fire building. And it was incredible to see how much they want to learn, right? And they don't want to sit on the computer all day. And they want more teaching and whatnot. But unfortunately, a lot of it's not provided. Or there's not people willing to donate their time to help educate them. So, you know, when I talk about the kids, I, I don't think it's the kids' fault. Mm-hmm. Right. It's 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 the parents and it's the others who want to have to help them to learn. 100%. And you also have to want to donate your time. And I think that's one thing that maybe the pandemic has helped is charities and organizations are getting more requests from people to donate their time. So I help run feedings for homeless and all the holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving. We have a team of 50 volunteers. We're getting more and more requests now from people for the next one. Hey, can I volunteer? Right? That is good. Right? That is something we didn't see a lot of in the past. Now, unfortunately, orgs are getting less money, donations, actual money, because of, of the financial issues a lot of people are having. But I do think that this has opened up a lot of people's eyes in terms of if you have your health, your job, and a nice house, you're ahead of the game. I think it is making some people a lot more appreciative, to Paul's point earlier, what we actually have. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I would say that when you talk about kids and their awkwardness and the things that they're not doing, it is a thousand percent not their fault. Like, you know, I do. I have a teen. I have seventeen year old and a fifteen year old. I can assure you, they understand the value of shaking someone's hand. You know why? Because I make them do it. They, you know, they appreciate the, you know, the the importance of hard work because we make them do it. They, you know, they do play video games with their buddies. You know that they're connected to virtually, but then, you know. We insist and invest the time and significant amount of energy. Mostly, my wife; she does all the driving and all that shit. But, <laughs> but you know, all to to get that. You know, they're still doing swim practice. I mean, we're we are absolutely facing a COVID headwind when it comes to that stuff. Cumberland County is a hot mess compared to the other counties around us. But I mean, they're still doing stuff. They're out. You know, they're going to cross country practice. They're going to swim practice. Like we are, you know. But you got it. Like that's the adult's responsibility to do that shit. It's not the kid's responsibility. You've got to, you, you know. It's not easy, you know. Christine always says parenting is not for the weak, um, and it's certainly not for the lazy. But yeah, it's it's a hundred percent on you know the responsibility of the adult to make sure that that's continuing to happen. And it's not hard. That shit's just not hard. It's not hard to tell your kid to you know to learn how to shake somebody's hand, and that's not weird. You, right. you know what I mean? Like uh, that's I don't know. Well, but yeah. yeah you're, you're, it, yeah. So something this so this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, but I think really ties into this as well about where we are technology uh you know media i I really look at these as dominant ideas or dominant narratives that that inform individual beliefs in our society and um you know we think about uh our role as parents when we think about the role that technology plays in our lives uh, one of the big questions one of the things I always like to do is step back and say, what what ideas and beliefs are we are we taking as uh, absolute truth that really aren't? Number one is because we have so much information coming at us and we have devices that give us that information 24-7, it creates this unconscious idea. And I say unconscious because a lot of people just accept this as, well, this is reality and this is the way it should be, that I need to be informed about every little thing that's going on all the time in every part of the world. 
Yes, instantly. Instantly. And the fact yeah. is, no, you don't. You never did. Right. Because right. what it does is it, it's designed, again, it goes to, into these incentives and these models to capture that attention, to get you to engage with it. The most frustrating thing is when you're being told about all the horrors going on in the world, both factual and you know exaggerated, whatever they may be, our natural instinct is, okay, well, I want to do something about that to fix the problem. Whether they realize this, okay, well, how do we fix this? But there is no solution. So if you tell me about something that's going on in Africa, this, you know, like where a genocide taking place in some part of the world, what am I going to do with that information? How is that? What can I do right now with that information? And the answer is nothing. Unless you're in a, it does not mean that you don't think it's important. See, again, there's another idea. It's like, well, if you think there's just nothing you can do, you must be a heartless piece of shit. Who doesn't love humans? Like, it just creates these layers of ideas that we, that go unquestioned. And so when you have all of that buildup, it, it force, it's so easy to force people into different camps and to create new ideas that they have to follow and new rules that they have to follow to where we're scrutinizing everything because maybe my kid's awkward. Uh, what, what do all these other blogs say about this? Or how should I be parenting? We've, we've, we've surrendered over a lot of our natural human instinct and just our natural human connection to the, uh, the ecosphere, the information, uh, uh, what, you know, just... I can't think of the exact right word or anything really clever to say about that, but you know all the information that is out there because we're constantly questioning. You're saying ourselves. it's it's the fear of missing out. Right? Exactly, it's the it is. About, it right? is. It's the fear of getting it wrong because the other idea too, which is very much human nature, is if you have the information, then you should be able to quickly deduce the answer, and that is completely false. We have tons of information, but that doesn't mean you should have everything figured out. So we've also created a culture where the idea that you don't have the answer or that you are still learning or that maybe you don't know exactly what's going to happen, where that is looked at as being either lazy or you're just uninformed. And that's yeah, also negative. Incorrect. Right. Exactly. I mean, look, it's to avoid risk is to avoid progress. Yeah. I think most people would disagree with that and say, why would I want to take a risk? Well, because you're never going to learn anything. OK, so what do you do? You take a calculated risk. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what one, you're of, one of the day. business rules that I always tell people when when GBs or someone else say I want to start my own business, this or that. I always say one thing. I I mean, I tell them a couple of things, but the first thing is always have a margin of safety. Always have a margin of safety, and I GBs are the same way, right? Now you have a dangerous job, but you have a safety to a safety to a safety. Okay, sometimes it's not going to work out. It's war. It is what it is. But it's not like you're just rolling in blind, right? It, put that in your business plan, right? Put that in your personal life, right? You have to have risk in order to progress. But to your point, Jared, people seem so scared to get anything wrong mm -hmm. or to not know something else somebody else knows, even if it's information they can't practically apply in any way, shape or form. And that's why I always appreciate, especially if I meet someone for the first time and we go somewhere and we sit and we have a drink, the first thing they do is turn their phone off. No, yeah. I like them right away. Yeah. Because they realize they want to be in that moment. They don't need to be distracted by a phone. It doesn't matter what happens for the next hour, right? You'll, you'll get that message later. But that is so rare and unique today. Even in business meetings, the number of people who will just keep looking at their phone while you're talking to them. And it's like, wow, do you have ADD? Do you just not want to focus? Or are you just lazy and you feel like you have to do three things at once? Or am I just boring the hell out of you? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's that. God, yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah, that that 
that idea of like people like people tell me that too about being in business meetings and other people are checking their phones i'll lose i'll end up losing my shit i'll be like hey man what are you doing you know what I mean like i'll absolutely call somebody out about that in your mind as a gb you do not understand it you guys won't until you get out and that is the thing that draws me to being around you guys so much and spending so much time with you guys is that you're in that moment, right? You're engaged. Also, most of you flat out stink with technology, right? Even the echoes, they're just <laughs> they're just not good, right? And I love it. And I love when I'm on team chats on Signal and I send something and six of them reply and go, I don't have Instagram. How the hell do I see that? Right? And I keep forgetting, like, okay, these guys are not high tech, but that's what I like, right? They don't care about having the Gucci gear and the latest phone or some new streaming thing that's out. Most of them are blue collar, right? If they want to start a business, the goal isn't like a lot of other people where it's like, well, I want to make $5 million in the first year. Right? Just, <laughs> well, they're not they're not looking for that. They'd be happy with, you know, a small fraction of that. So I think it comes down to, you know, what do we all has, have as individuals, um, you know, especially as men, we have our integrity, our integrity and our reputation. Right? That's all we have. But if, if people focus on that more and if people took the skill sets that the that the GBs have learned over the years, right, and really honed, I mean, Paul, I, I think you'd probably agree that, you know, if there's one thing I think SF is better at than all the other soft units combined, it's the selection process, right? I mean, just the way you select and go through selection, what I personally think is, is better than others in terms of what you're looking for. And... What is it that you're looking for, right? How can those skill sets be practically applied, not just when you guys get out, but how can you share those and teach those to other individuals? And I think that's something that's missing is you all cross-train within a unit or within an ODA. We don't cross-train in the civilian world. So if you get a job in sales, you don't care what the hell marketing is doing. You don't talk to product. Now, good companies let you do that because they realize, well, sales should know how their product's being marketed. But in the business world, everything's a silo. In your guys' world, it's not. Big difference. Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely have the market cornered on selection, I would argue. you know. And part of the problem is people always want to try and figure out how we, you know, how we do it. And you know, Stu and I will always say, hey, sometimes it, it's okay to not know exactly why it works, just that it does work. But at the end of the day, you know, we find the, our process produces people who have an un, unusual amount of grit, functional intelligence, and the ability to work on a team. I mean, that's really what we, that's really what the process gives us. And if you have those things, the process, you'll make it through. Or generally, I should say, the people who make it through have those things, you know? And then there's the other components of toughness, audacity, and and a unique commitment to love. But I mean, that's, you know, the, the, those things that come out of that process, I would argue, are um, we definitely have the the market cornered on that. Uh, I would I would agree. Wouldn't and so yeah. imagine putting those skill sets inside an organization. Yeah, right. Wouldn't those you say, organizations, Paul, for the most part, are missing that. A great deal of how you guys make those those choices, though. That's a lot of that's instinct. When you talk about you and Stu not being able to explain exactly, hey, this is how we do it. A great deal of it's just in your gut. You know, if somebody's a piece of shit, too. I mean, you've, yeah, you've told me you're like, of, yeah, you kind a, of weed out some of the psychopaths. Yeah, that... Yes, yes, kind of. That's subjectivity that we try to eliminate as much as we possibly can. Because, look, there's a lot of guys 
Dan said at the very beginning, you know, there's a bell curve of Green Berets as well as well as anything else. Doesn't necessarily mean that that, you know, that every guy that's out there making an assessment is going to make an assessment that's objective and fair or objective and, and reasonable. So we try to remove subjectivity as much as we possibly can. So the process itself, for whatever reason, whatever the reason is, that three-week-long grueling process produces this individuals with these qualities. And the ones that don't have those qualities don't make it through, right? Um, so I would say it's not necessarily, I mean, yeah, we might have, at some point you have that instinct to be look at a guy and be like, eh, I don't think so. But we try not to impl- we try not to formalize that into the process at all because we know that that can be incredibly um, biased and skewed. You know, and I, I think mean, that's look, the I, same case in the business world, right? When you first meet someone, you you want to know are you going to do business with them, right? You have to judge them, right? You have to think is this person trustworthy, right? Yeah. So what do you do? You ask them specific questions. You look at their background. You think of what their motive is. Why is it that they want this particular business or partnership? Or, you know, there's a process there as well. It's a bit, you know, different in the business world, but you can't get it right 100% of the time. And the biggest thing you're trying to figure out is from an object, objective standpoint, right? Um, does this person mesh and fit with the business culture that you have, the uh, principles that you have for your business, just like the principles you have in SF? Is it a match? And if it's not a match, it doesn't necessarily mean the person isn't capable. It's just that they're not fitting into what currently makes us successful as an organization. Yeah. I mean, if I allowed subjectivity to rule, I mean, you know, what, what does it say that I, you know, that I partner in, in multiple ways with Jared on that's <laughs> <much laughs> judgment right there. Right? You I can't mean, pronounce your name right on most of the podcasts. So yeah. And that's not intentional. I just, I am that stupid. So, <laughs> and also I'll just point out you guys as part of your logo do have martini glasses. So I'm not sure what that says. I mean, to me that says fun, but Best pandemic yes, ever, it. man. It's, just, it's the best it's pandemic party. ever. You said, what did you say? You said earlier, um, you said something about, uh, you were talking about integrity and how, you know, it, with oh, people, yeah. but particularly with among men. And I'm like, oh, that's it. Dan's done. That's yep. it. Yeah. Cancer, here comes yeah. cancel culture. And I would say that was true were it not for the fact that we are relatively, nobody listens. So, and this is why, this is why I know we haven't arrived, right? We haven't arrived because we never talked about this, but and and I want to be respectful of your time because we go on a little long today. But, um, you know, you said I, I I was complaining about my my cable bill. I was actually complaining about my cable service, and of course, you know, the one of the things that you and I Dan were talking about in email was my was my um, let's just call it a criticism of AT and T. It was yeah. a little more colorful than that, right? Yeah, of course. But so. And it probably not a lot of people realize this because it didn't seem to make the news as much as I thought it would. Um, but the uh, the the bomb that was detonated in Nashville, I think on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, was right in front of the AT and T, um, not the AT and T offices, but like the AT and T directed facility. at them. Yeah. yeah, their internet facility. And I'm like, look, it is. I, I can't. I, you know I why that have, is, right? I know, because yeah. that guy thought that 5G was now tracking us. Well, here, but here's the thing. Here's my issue. The issue is I have this podcast on which, you know, I make a very public and damning declaration against AT&T, right? And then this guy blows up the AT&T internet, you know, uh, service area uh, facility. And, you know, 
Nobody's even attempting to weave me into some kind of conspiracy. I mean, I, look, it happened in Nashville. I lived in Clarksville. I'm an NSF guy. Like, shouldn't I be splashing on the? In You're some upset that you you weren't hauled in. Right? You're upset yes, you weren't hauled in. Well, yeah. Like that means nobody's paying attention. I feel Man. like we haven't arrived. Now, if they do look at his playlist though, and they find that that show is in there, I. I'll have really mixed feelings about it. First, I'll be like, "Wow, we made it to Nashville." Ugh. And you're right. You didn't. You weren't complaining about your bill. It was the fact that they didn't show up for a service call, right? It was the yeah, service thing. But, but that is the point of like service in this country is based on what? It's based on an individual, and it's based on what is the mentality of that individual, right? Do they really want to help? Do they really want to service? I know people who will be like, "Well, I work from nine to five. If I see our best client calling on the phone at five oh one, I'm not picking it up." And they go, no one's paying me to do that. No, actually, they are. Right? They're paying to keep you, the client happy. That's your job. So it goes back to like, you can't be lazy. What is your motive? You got to want to help others. You got to have the empathy. And again, it's it's so much of what the skill sets of SF have. There was a great book. It's probably 30 or 40 years old now that I read when I used to work in grocery and it was called It's Not My Department. And it was this great book about, you know, customer service philosophy and caring about people. You know, it's probably deserves to be um, re-energized because it was a great message. You know, there's all that kind of stuff. And I will say this. I got to be fair. They rescheduled our, you know, our. No, they installed it and then it broke because it was fiber and apparently you can't sneeze on it or else it breaks. Right. So they installed. So so it breaks. And I go online and I schedule a repair. And I realize that the repair is scheduled on Thanksgiving Day. And I'm like, man, what the? I, I was like, they're never going to show up. I'm going to. And so I go on on Thanksgiving Day to their technician tracking website. That's shit. It doesn't work. So I don't know where this guy. But you know what? The guy showed up. Yeah. Do you know why? Yeah, probably time and a half. Yeah, of course. You know they're showing okay. up for those reporters. No, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanksgiving Day, but but I got and he was and the guy was awesome. The guy was like couldn't have been nicer. He like went the extra mile to like protect the cable and stuff. So I got to give the devil his due. That guy, I wish I knew his name. He was pretty squared away. Hey, I think I gave the guy can a I just, tip too. Can I just say here, Paul, that like you just demonstrated the whole reason why if people in leadership positions screw something up, they should just own it because other people are incredibly forgiving. And, th and that is a problem that we have, you know, against, like at a meta level here, right? You see this on all political sides, you know, in the media, everywhere. Uh, just this, nobody wants to take responsibility. Oh, it's not right. my fault. No, nobody takes responsibility. It's or, the policy of the company. Exactly. Or we are going to lie, you know, like this especially happened in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, by, you know, Fauci, Trump, our state rep representatives, Democrats, Republicans, all of them. We are going to tell you the story like, oh, well, you know, N95 masks aren't aren't really going to help you, you know. And then later comes out and says, well, we said that because we were concerned there's going to be a run on the masks. And it's like, well, look, you've already lost trust. Why don't you just be honest with people if you mess up, own it, and you'll be amazed at the grace that people will give to you. And I think that yes, that is and, a huge problem. And good executives enable their employees, right? They don't oh, restrict totally. them. Yeah. And it's sad when you talk to somebody on the phone from a customer service standpoint who says, man, I really want to help you or I want to give you a discount or whatnot. But because your service was only out for an hour and it's prorated, I can only give you 38 cents as a refund, right, which costs the company more to even send me. So what's the point of even doing that? And 
they feel bad for you, right? Yeah. They want to do a better job. They want to keep you as a customer. But what do they do? The executives handicap them. Yeah. Right. So take that GB mentality. Hey, here, here's an ODA. Here's your mission. This is the end state. You guys go figure out how to get there. In the business world, it's very rare when you have executives that truly enable their employees. Usually they put things in their path. So I always say when I come across someone I consider a genius in my industry who wants um, you know, some mentorship, I always say, I'll give you the keys to the car, but I'll remove the obstacles from you. Right? You go drive. I'll remove the things in your way so you can keep going faster. And if we had more executives that did that and they led by example – um, and you hired well, you hired the right people for the right reason, I think businesses would be in a much better state than they are now. Just before the pandemic, Accenture put out a stat, more than 50% of small businesses in the U.S. had less than two weeks of cash on hand to survive. Think about that. That's before COVID. So for all the talk about all these businesses that go under because of COVID and small businesses, no doubt they will, and there's an impact. But this is before COVID. 50% didn't have enough cash for more than two weeks. What does that tell you about business? A lot of them are really poorly run. Yeah. yeah you, you know, if you want to see that, if you want to see that model, that empowerment model in practice, everybody's always talking about, you know, um, or uh, anyway, Chick-fil-A, right? Everybody yeah. always, you know, wants to talk about how successful Chick-fil-A is. And, um, but what makes those guys so successful is exactly that model. And they do it down to the lowest level. Like you go there and... Um, they forget something on your order, that place is always jammed. I mean, it's always jammed. You go walking up there and you say, hey, you forgot to give me your fries. A kid on the, at the counter turns around, grabs one, hands it to you and says, oh, it's my pleasure to serve you. They don't ask to see your receipt. They don't All look right. for a manager. Everybody there is empowered to satisfy the customer. Yeah. And you know what it does in the long run? It makes them more money and more profitable. That's yeah, right. look at them. They just opened a new Chick-fil-A about two miles from our house, which is why I was like, oh, well, we can't move now. So <laughs> they opened They opened yesterday. They opened yesterday um, at 6 a.m. I was on my way to work at 6.30, and that place was packed already. already. Throw in the fact I think that, that also comes from confidence, right? That's confidence that they've given their employees where they can solve a problem for you on the spot. They don't have to ask for a manager. And what do we see about confidence, right? Confidence is contagious, and it comes from preparation and a sense of trust from others but how many people in this world forget business just individuals you know right take gbs out of the mix here are not very confident as individuals or what they do yeah yeah well you know something else in that same story there too is that with chick-fil-a they made the directive so stupidly simple it's customer it's serving the customer service to the customer is number one always yeah. you know treating them like they are king and that is that if you make it that simple and and you don't overcomplicate it then they are they're empowered to do that and all of that how well they do and they're only open six days a week they're not open and on the, the question is did paul actually stop at 6 30 and get food or did he just drive by oh, so let me tell you exactly what i did right? do i didn't however you know, we all, but me and the boys and Christine were like, well, we got to get Chick-fil-A opening day, right? We got to get it for dinner. So Thursday night was going to be Chick-fil-A. It was so busy there, Dan, that I couldn't get, I did curbside delivery and they've already got it wired, right? You go there, there's numbered slots, numbered parking spots. You pull up, you say, I'm in this spot. It comes up. It was so busy. I couldn't get to the numbered parking spots. We parked in the other parking lot next door. I walked and I stood in one wow. of the numbered parking spots and like I was my truck 
waiting for them to bring that stuff out. Oh yeah, it was yeah. So yes, the answer is yes, yes, they did. I went yeah, and I, I figured. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well we we have we have consumed a lot of your time. This is longer than we usually go, but only because it's been so great. Yeah. Um, you know, and I and usually we we kind of we always kind of wrap up with asking someone what you know what what the silver lining has been for them in the pandemic. I mean, I think you've hit on a lot of them. Certainly, this idea that there's a possibility that the pendulum will swing back the other way with people and them understanding, you know, their their need for each other. Um, but anything else jump out to you that you know over the last year you're like, hey man, this has been the silver lining for you personally. I mean, for me personally, you know, I, I always try and focus on the small things, right? I, I think attention to detail is key, and a lot of people look at you know, the bigger picture, they want to go from, from here to here, but they have to realize it's, it's like a puzzle, right? You have to put all the little pieces in place to see the picture that you're going to have at the end. And, you know, you can't skip hard work, right? You can't, you can't skip all these skill sets you have to have as an individual. So for me, I've, I've been very fortunate that I focused on, on what I have, not what I don't have. So when the pandemic hit, I'm already fortunate. I work from a nice home. I own my home. I, you know, I've been here 20 years. I work for myself. Uh, I don't live in Manhattan. So I, I kind of felt like I was ahead of the game. So then the issue is, okay, well, you know, what can you do to help more? Okay, so it's, well, you know, now all these Girl Scouts are stuck at home. They can't go to school. All right, well, let's get some activities for them outside, right, even if we have to social distance. So it's, uh, I, I, th I think a lot of it is just giving back and having a, a sense of responsibility for, for helping others. And I think it's also at the same time, it just more and more, it just, it truly makes me appreciate how unique SF is and how they operate as individuals. And, you know, I always, I always say, Paul, um, it's, it's such a humbling position to be in where these guys, many of them really treat me like one of their own when I'm not right. The brotherhood that you all have is something that you can't really describe to another and I'll never truly understand it, right? Because I'm not GB. But um, that sense of commitment to one another, that sense of not wanting to let the guy down next to me, which is why you do your job, it, that comes through to me even stronger in, in an era now where people just seem to want to argue and they want to, you know, not listen to anyone and just they want to constantly shout their mouth off for. Um, for whatever reason, you know, Sam Rayburn, former Speaker of the House, my relative said no one had a finer control of language than the one who keeps his mouth shut. Hmm. And to me, I feel like that's a lot of what people need to do these days. Like, keep your mouth shut, focus, worry about yourself. Well, man, look, you you do so much for the Green Berets. Um, I, I, you know, I am speaking on behalf of many, 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 many of us when I say how much we appreciate it. Um, you've made a difference in people's lives that is not insignificant to us. Um, you know, it seems like some things are, you know, s small things, but, you know, you've impacted the lives of people and their families. And that means something, man. I mean, it really does, you know. Um, and so on behalf of all the guys that, that I know who know what you're doing, uh, thank you. And, you know, we're, we're always here to help you in your efforts. And, um, you know, I, I just I can't tell you how much we appreciate everything you've done over the last couple years it's really made it's really impacted a lot of people's lives i uh, definitely appreciate all you guys for sure no doubt and th thanks for coming on i mean clearly yeah. yeah you're clearly something's going on in your life and i don't know you you don't 
want to share it, but when you, when you decide to get to this rock bottom. <laughs> yeah. You talked no, about you know, integrity and reputation. That's gone I, now. What I did think was I've never cursed on my podcast. I've never cursed in any of my, any of my blogs or on TV. And then, so I heard you guys talking. I'm like, uh-oh. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Dan. Dan. Just drop an F-bomb real quick here. This will be yeah, that. No, not going to happen. Uh, all right. Oh, thanks, well, man. Well, Dan, Jared. No, we, we've got our stock outros now, bro. We don't have to do anything real special here. But, uh, Dan, I do appreciate you coming on. It was great to get to meet you and then have a conversation like this. And uh, I say this to a lot of our guests because, you know, we, we seem to be attracting some really high-quality people. But we definitely want to have another conversation. There's so much more to cover. So uh, if you're up for it and your reputation isn't too badly scarred by this first interview, then, uh, yeah, we definitely need to have a part two for sure. Yeah, I mean, that'd be great if you guys want to just, you know, drill down into something more specific. Like, I don't know who your audience is, right? What are they? We don't either, bro. (laughs) No, but you guys are tracking some of that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, They're all faceless numbers out there. Is it more military related, right? Is it? No, no, no. No, no, it's not. No. Uh, No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dan, thanks so much, man, for being here. This is great. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Great Great to talk to you again. Good to see you. If you made it this far, you either fell asleep, are trapped under something heavy, or were genuinely interested in the episode. If you fell asleep, get some rest. If you're trapped under something heavy, get some help. If you were genuinely interested in the episode, tell your friends. Like, subscribe, share, download, do all those things. Press all those buttons. Spread the word. No matter how you got this far, we sincerely appreciate it. Thank you for listening. See ya.